Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. I want to bring in Vasilios Janakis. Drag him into this conversation. Strategy at Lombard ODA. Vasilios, does this make a difference? It's a lot of noise, and I'm just trying to work out whether it really disrupts this FOMC. I think it's definitely disrupting for the FOMC. Um, all, all these noise, all these rumors. Again, I, I'm on the same page as you are in that I don't subscribe to these rumors. I think uh, the, the the FOMC, the Federal Reserve, has maintained its its full independence and autonomy in making all decisions. Um, uh, one may has to question the timing of of the shift in what uh, actually changed uh, between December and January, so that we have such a massive uh, shift because in December we already had a collapsing market. But nonetheless, you know, I'm, I'm still in the camp that the Fed um, is operating in a totally independent environment. But as you said, this is definitely not helpful and it is putting a lot of pressure um, on them. Now, uh, in, in terms of the 50 basis points cuts, look, uh, w- what I think is interesting is that we find ourselves, all three of us, and potentially a lot of other people that are actually discussing that the U.S. administration is the one that's looking for a 50 basis points cut. And I find this absurd. This is the job of the Federal Reserve. That's the job of the central bank. And the U.S. administration has no business into contemplating um, hikes or cuts in in, in the federal funds rate, right? Vasilios, Kevin Warsh, somewhat Powell-like, with Randall Krosner appointed a zillion years ago. He got some real criticism on his confirmation. And I would suggest the zeitgeist is that Governor Warsh delivered the goods over his tenure, that he did a pretty darn good job, uh, given the, the, the worries that he was younger and experienced and Morgan Stan- evil Morgan Stanley and, and all that. Why would we think anyone appointed by the president, other than a complete homer, but why would we think Chairman Warsh would do what the president wants? Uh, but I don't think this is the issue. I think the issue is that it creates a precedent. If something yes, happens, yes. I think the main problem is that it has never happened. And I'm not entirely sure the, the legalities of it, if it can actually happen. But let's say that it does happen. And, and personally, I think it's a very, very low probability event. But if it does, it creates a yeah. really ugly precedent. John, I've got to interrupt. I believe right now I'm seeing live Prime Minister May... And Mr. Corbin, and they're going at it, John, is me as a foreigner. I've never seen it. Prime Minister's questions taking yeah. place in the House of Parliament. They're really going at it. <laughs> we'll try and bring you some highlights of that a little bit later. I think, Vasilios, this issue has largely been resolved. I think the administration recognises now that they can't get rid of Chairman Powell. Right. What I worry about is that the president is getting bad advice, and he's getting bad advice from those around him, and I think he realises he's had some bad advice from Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin on Chairman Powell. These are the individuals in and around the president suggesting who he should nominate for the FOMC. He chose Chairman Powell on the advice of Secretary Mnuchin. Chairman Powell was never going to be the Federal Reserve Chairman that the President wanted. And let's be clear, if Kevin Walsh was the second suggestion for the President of the United States, Kevin Walsh was never going to be the Chairman of the Federal Reserve the President wanted. Kevin Walsh is not the uber dove of this cycle. That's right. No, That's in no right. way, shape or form. Agreed. Which makes me wonder, why aren't they making suggestions to the President that are palatable for the Senate 
and ultimately have the policies that the president would like once he sits down okay. or she sits down Chairman Cudlow? in the chair. Why not Chairman Cudlow? He's earned it with public service. <laughs> Vasilius? Oh, honestly, I don't know. I, I don't have the answer to this. And I have to say that, you know, I've been puzzled by a lot of things that this administration is is, is uh, going through right now. I think I get the sense, however, and irrespective of specific names um, uh, uh, for that could be nominated <laughs> later uh, for Fed and everything, I think the administration right now is getting the feeling, is starting to get it, that the fiscal stimulus that was enacted was, in my view, was totally untimely because it was implemented at, at the full employment, exactly when the economy was firing at all cylinders, is going to start fading. These impul fiscal impulses are going to start fading. And potentially, they're getting worried about oh. this because we're getting closer to the next elections. And then uh, they, they are trying to come up with potential suggestions or discussions that will be able to cushion the blow that is going to come from waning uh, fiscal impulses. This has been wonderful. Vasilius Giannakis, thank you so much. It's been just very strong today. Thank you so much, Lombard. Pleasure. Uh, ODA. The FT reporting that the US and China have resolved most of the key issues standing in the way of a deal with the exception of two sticking points. One is the fate of existing tariffs, and the second one, and maybe these two are combined, is the enforcement of any prospective trade deal. So that's hanging over the market in a good way today, together with the better-than-expected services data. I believe that we can get the thoughts now of Jane Foley of Rabobank. She's the head of FX Strategy and joins us from London for more. Jane, the mood music is better this Wednesday morning. Is that all it is, mood music, or is it something better than well, that? You know, I, I agree. I think I think mood music is a, is a good sign because certainly it's, it does seem that risk on has developed um, over the course of the, the week. We did, of course, at the start of the week have better manufacturing PMIs for both China and the U.S. And I think that set the market off on on a positive tone. And of course, this FT report about the the trade deal is is, is almost done. Is is just if, if you like the icing on the cake. But I don't think we need to scrape too far below that to to see something a little more ominous. And that is, of course, related to at the slower world growth story. Now at the end of last week, that was the one that was rising to the surface and, and, and spooking investor sentiment. And I think that will probably happen again. It needs potentially some bad news on the trade front, some bad economic news, and, and the market is going to be uh, fearful of this all over again. Are you in the camp, Jane, where you believe that if we get a trade deal, it unlocks some of the global growth concerns, does it? <clears throat> Well, I mean, it certainly would be good news to have some sort of trade deal, but I, I think an, an awful lot of people are sceptical as to whether or not this is the end of the story. I mean, we know that, uh, that the last parts of this trade deal are, are probably the ones that are most difficult to negotiate. We know that they're probably regarding <clears throat> how the U.S. Is, is possibly going to police uh, some of the elements related to uh, intellectual property rights, etc., that, that it wants China to agree to. How is that going to happen without China saying, well, look, you know, we're not going to give up any sovereignty here. So it, yeah. it is going to be tough, and I would expect that uh, issues related to that are going to bubble up to the surface again over the next few years. My experience with trade deals, including multilateral trade deals, uh, Jane Foley, is the entire exercise is to save face. Based on what you've learned, not only the FT story, but everything else, are we in a position where both parties, quote-unquote, save face? 
Well, again, I think China has been over the last month or so quite concerned that they would have some sort of ceremony between the two presidents, the U.S. and and China, and and then Trump would perhaps walk out in the way that he did in in Vietnam. Hence the uh, the news that China just wants a signing ceremony. They they want all the work to be done, first of all, because that would not be, you know, a a good election for China. So there there are certain concerns with respect to that, but certainly if they did get something across the finish line, yes, it would say face for both. That's dependent on how, of course, it was presented. Okay. Uh, but it doesn't mean to say it's the end of the story. So what's your dollar call on that? If we get to some form of face-saving solution, what is a Rabobank dollar call? Well, this is quite interesting, you know, because I, I think the dollar has, I mean, certainly again, you look at it today, the, the, the dollar has, has fallen a little bit, and the, and the dollar seems to be uh, uh, behaving as a, as a safe haven. So when the risk appetite is good, uh, there is a tendency for, for, for investors to move into riskier currencies safe, uh, and, and away from the safe havens. And, and that seems to be meaning that sometimes uh, when um, there is good news, the dollar isn't, isn't faring so well. That said, you know, we do think that over the next few months, there will be concerns about world growth. That they are there. That they are very real, um, and there will be real concerns about some other G10 economies. The, the euro, I think, is is on a, a weak footing. So, we are generally speaking uh, quite constructive about the outlook for the dollar, not because of the U.S. fundamentals per se, but because of concerns about fundamentals elsewhere. Well, Jane, let's talk about how you plug in that view into G10 right now. It's been really difficult to get a weaker euro. Euro dollar has been stuck in this really tight, narrow trading range. And I'm trying to work out how we break out to the downside because we have thrown everything at the euro and it's still pretty resilient in the face of it all. Well, you say that, but of course, uh, the euro really did uh, underplay the majority or certainly the market consensus expectations. It has done so for the last year and a bit, year year and a quarter. I mean, if we go back, you know, 12 months, we were trading at 124, and now we're down at 112. Um, And an awful lot of people in the market anticipated that we will be back, you know, at 118, 120 by the end of last year. So the euro, you know, has softened. And of course, the reason why the euro has softened is is because the, the, the performance of the eurozone economy has been disappointing. We had that weak number for Germany in, in Q3. Many people and many economists told us that we would see a rebound. We haven't seen that rebound. Germany, of course, is a, is a massive exporter, very, very sensitive to slowdown in, in world growth. And, and that certainly does seem to be creeping through. Another really bad number early in the week for, for German final uh, manufacturing PMI. So the euro, I think, is 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 really on the back foot. And, and of course, we have the May uh, European elections. There could be a, a, a that the scope here for the far left and the far right to do relatively well in these European parties. Jane, I take all of that. They're all really, that, really that good points. But a big move lower in euro dollar was last spring when we came down from the 120s down to sub 120 and in and around 115. But since November, we've tested 112. That's been the line in the sand three times and can't sustainably break below 112. So what's going to do it? Well, again, you know, I think... I, I mean, I do see that there is the potential for us to go to, to 110. But again, in the, in the likes of what you've just been saying, this, this range trading, that would be quite a sizable move. Well, I think it might be the politics, and I think it might be the ECB. You know, we have a, a, a situation where the ECB may need to add additional liquidity uh, because of the European right. growth aspect and against some, some potential for some wobbly politics in, in the Eurozone too. You've got to bear in mind that Brexit is something that doesn't reflect well on, well, on the Eurozone or the EU either. Jane, I just got a brilliant idea for John Farrow's new property on Bloomberg Television, Parity Watch. 
Do you want to do a show called Parity Watch? Yeah, you should do a show can, called Parity Can you imagine Parity how Watch. boring that would be for the last no, couple of it, years? Haven't we been playing <clears throat> Parity Watch since 2015? No, but we're going to get under 110 and we're all going to go hysterical over Parity Watch. You know the notes will come. Yeah. I don't know if they're going to come from Jane Foley, but I'm just saying the notes will probably come the, if you break 110. Are. Jane Foley, thank you so much on short notice. Really Thanks, appreciate Jane, it. as always. Didn't get to Sterling, but uh, I greatly, greatly appreciate that uh, as well. This is a joy, and I think I can state for all Americans in uniform, not me, but those that have served uh, this nation, uh, a special moment that on the 70th anniversary of NATO, we have the advantage of James Stravitas. You know him from Tufts Fletcher School, his wonderful books, uh, and also now at Carlisle Group. But, of course, he was a former Supreme Commander uh, for NATO. Admiral, wonderful to have you with us to say good morning. Good morning, Tom. Big week for NATO. Big week for NATO. Let us go back to a president who supported NATO, and that would be H.S. Truman, April 4th, 1949. The echoes of World War II uh, were in that uh, room at the Oval Office. There was hunger in Europe. The Marshall Plan was gearing up. It was, I'm going to call it, pre-Korea. As an amateur, what was a sweat factor day one for NATO? NATO had, right from the beginning, a crystal clear mission, which was to keep the Soviet Union out, to keep the Americans in, because, Tom, you'll remember in the 1920s, after World War I, we walked away from Europe. We yep. failed to join the League of Nations. That led to the Second World War. So a principal goal of NATO was not only keeping the Soviets out, but keeping the Americans in. Those were the two sweat factors. And also, subliminally, people wanted to keep the Germans down. They were worried about a rearming of Germany. So there were sort of three big reasons okay. to play, and they all came through. And then Charles de Gaulle, 1966, he says, France out. I remember that uproar in junior high or high school, uh, whatever it was, uh, uh, Jim. But, but the president, President Trump, maybe would like out, too. Explain to President Trump right now, listening, why de Gaulle wanted out and, and how did America react to that? Uh, Charles de Gaulle wanted out because of his immense personal ego that he felt was being subliminated by the continuing presence of France in the alliance. And once de Gaulle passed from the scene, France reintegrated with NATO, as you know. Uh, in terms of why we should stay in, it's excellent value proposition for the United States. Those Europeans spend $300 billion a year on defense. That's the second largest defense budget in the world, Tom. It's uh, larger than that of Russia and China combined. So should they get up to the 2% yeah. of GDP? Yes, they should. The president should continue to hit them on that. But overall, it's good value for a dollar. Ambassador Burns and Ambassador Lute, in a study for Harvard, mm. writing in the Washington Post, I believe it was yesterday, really go after this president of the United States. What would you advise the president is his newly minted secretary of defense? <laughs> that was a joke, folks. Uh, <laughs> what, what would you advise the new president of the United States about writing his message on NATO? 
I would tell him it's okay to push the Europeans, and you want to kind of bend them a little bit to get them to spend a bit more, but you don't want to break this relationship. And boy, we think of it as a transatlantic bridge, Tom, and you kind of hear it creaking a little bit, given some of the tone that's come out of President Trump. He could alter his tone uh, and still get the benefits of NATO. That would be the approach to take. How are Americans treated at NATO headquarters? You walked in the door one day with a lot of fancy brass on your shoulders. How are, are Americans different at the NATO headquarters than those of Europe? No. Uh, I would say that the Americans are viewed as the leaders of the alliance, but not the dominant nation in the alliance. It's a very collegial atmosphere as between all the ambassadors from the mm-hmm. 29 nations and from all the senior four-star officers who were there as well. Um, I had uh, wonderful times with my European colleagues. They remain among my closest friends today. And I think that level of collegiality is what the alliance is all about. And that's why the Europeans were willing to come with us to Afghanistan and fight after 9-11. The only time the NATO alliance has energized Article 5, an attack on one is an attack on all, was after 9-11. They came and fought and died with us in Afghanistan. Does President Trump know that? I don't think he fully appreciates that. And I'll put a personal note on it, Tom. When I was Supreme Allied Commander, I signed over 2,000 letters of condolence to young men and women who died under my command in Afghanistan. Over a third were from Europe. That's an important point, to say uh, the least. Uh, James Davidis, uh, last week I was in front of 1,500 college kids, mm-hmm. and I stopped the, the, the show Two-thirds of the way through when I said, look, I'm giving you all these books to read. And, folks, you know I am. I go, shut up and read this. Shut up and read this. And I, I, I mentioned your leader's bookshelf. NATO's falling apart. The transatlantic alliance is falling apart. Which book does the president of the United States, which book does Nick Burns, which book does Tom Keene, which book do our listeners need to read on this magic of the Atlantic Charter and all of the North Atlantic? I would say the right answer is uh, The Second World War by Winston Churchill, because it is the ultimate cautionary tale for what happens when we don't work together as allies. And it's, in the end, a very reaffirming book about the work of the alliance as it came together in the aftermath of World War II. That alliance exists, so we don't do that again, Tom. was that shaped by the fascinating, and this is in the Larrabee book, folks, on the, on the generals and admirals of World War II, but was, was Churchill's book shaped on the battle of FDR with the assistance of Marshall, dealing with Churchill, and then, say, dealing with Montgomery, just the, the huge arguments that were in the middle of this war where everybody was on the same side? Indeed. And here I'm just going to draw a line under one admiral and one general. The admiral was Admiral Leahy, who was the president's chief of staff, five-star fleet admiral. And the general, of course, was George Marshall, effectively the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, as we understand it today. Those two were the steady, calm, quiet presence in Washington that helped forge the friendship and the alliance that ultimately, ultimately carried the day between FDR and Churchill, which was the most important relationship in winning World War II. James Trevitas, thank you so much.
this is a joy. We've, uh, uh, you know, within the debate, any given debate, there's always one side. It's easier to get, I would say, and it's easy to get Euroskeptics, Brexiteers is one phrase. Roland Rudd is a little different. He is in the public relations business, but that barely describes his commitment to the fabric of London and actually doing things instead of talking about it. Mr. Rudd has an affiliation with one of the jewels of London, the Royal Opera House, where in a today, rather, you will see Berenice. Will you be going to the opera tonight, Mr. Rudd? <laughs> well, I'm not actually going tonight. I've got a, um, a dinner with um, various MPs where we're going to continue the great discussion that you were just touching on. The fabric of London, if the Brexiteers win, if they push Prime Minister May and Mr. Corbyn aside and we go through the tumult that we've, we're all exhausted from, will your London change? Well, it will undoubtedly change. Um, I mean, it, you know, if we go for a Brexit deal where we're sort of closely aligned to the European Union, it'll be, you know, incremental, uh, slow, but a clear decline over a decade. Whereas if we go for this, you know, if for some reason we crashed out, which I really don't think will happen now, mm-hmm. but if we did, it would be very quick and very brutal, and it, we would see the difference within right. weeks. Um, and it would be quite catastrophic, I think, for our yeah. city and country. The Times of London has that Labour MP who writes uh, without his name. I think it's almost every day in the in the newspaper. Mm. And he is a Remain Labourite whose constituents are Leave people. How prevalent yeah. is that, would you say, across the Great Britain? I mean, are there a lot of MPs talking Remain where their constituents are talking Leave I wouldn't say there are a lot. Uh, I can think of quite a few Labour MPs who are basically Remainers who represent Leave constituencies and have steadfastly refused to support putting the uh, any potential deal back to the people. So it works the other way as well. But I think what you've seen recently is Parliament really um, reaffirming its its authority and really ensuring that ultimately it will have the final say. And even the Prime Minister, you know, last night when she made her decision to cut adrift the sort of far right of the party known as the ERG, the European Reform Group, um, but she made clear that if she can't do a deal with Corbyn, that's plan A, plan B is literally to allow Parliament to decide in a sort of alternative vote system. So, Roland, as we get down to the final days, although there very well may be a further extension, what is the view of the EU right now? Do you think they are in more of a mood to do some type of deal to be a little bit more flexible uh, to help uh, the UK along? I think they are, but I think you have to divide it. So if you take Germany and uh, someone like Donald Tusk, president, uh, you know, or, 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 of the council. If, if, if you take them, then they are very much um, in the basis of trying to help us. They would like to see us ask for long extension, so we could then put anything agreed back to the people. 
Um, and of course, you have to remember, you know, with Germany, they sell us much more than we sell them. If you take France, where we basically sell and buy roughly the same from each other, then President Macron has taken a far tougher line on Britain. I would just add one rider to that, which is if we were clear with him that we wanted a longer extension because the plan was to allow the people to have a final say and that there was an option of either remaining or revoking Article 50, so we, in effect, remained, then I think he becomes our friend because he would then be able to say, look, here's a country that dabbled with this sort of populism and looked over the abyss and decided, you know what, it's not worth it and came back. Uh, so at that point, he'd be our friend. But before that point, right. in terms of if we try to get a small extension, he, he, he won't agree to that. So, Roland, you mentioned perhaps putting this whole issue, quote unquote, back to the people. What do you think is most likely in that scenario? Would it be a second referendum or would it be, you know, a new election? Well, you can see you can see the possibility of both. So you could have an election and out of from the election you then lead into having another um, uh, public vote. But of course, in a referendum, but of course, the, the, the problem for the, for the Conservative Party, which is of course in, in power, is that not only has Theresa May said she wouldn't be here for the next election, which is not really due until 2022, but she, she of course also said she would go if her Brexit deal got through. So you, you find it very hard to see any circumstance in which Theresa May will leave the Conservative Party in election, yeah. which means the Conservative Party then has to have a leadership election before a general election. So that makes it very contemplated, yeah. you know, very, very complicated in terms of being able to do all of yeah. that within a proper time frame. Roland Rudd, thank you so much. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. With Finsbury and, of course, uh, uh, with the Royal Opera House uh, as well. He is decidedly remain. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.